What will Pierre Polyev's foreign policy be? We'll discuss that and more in the world of Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. How do Canadians view the military? There's new polling on that that we're going to go through. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington Report. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, lots of stuff going on on the Canadian political scene, too, uh, including not just with our prime minister, but with the opposition leader, uh, that being Pierre Polyev, and uh, getting a little bit of heat, as it turns out, uh, from some of his own people in the Conservative Party. Uh, and basically about, you know, where are you on some of these key issues? It seems as if a lot of what Polyev has been talking about over the last couple of months now is about housing and affordability. And the, his, his loyal supporters are saying, well, that's because that's all Canadians care about. I'm not so sure that's the case necessarily. The, Canada has a role to play internationally, and, and I think that's come to pass uh, with what's happened with the war in Ukraine, uh, energy policies, environmental and climate issues that are going on. And uh, a little bit of that heat coming from within uh, conservatives themselves, uh, including uh, Chris Alexander. Uh, Alexander, of course, is a former ambassador and was the immigration minister during the Stephen Harper government. And even he says, look, Polyev's got to get his act together now and be a little more forthcoming and clear about just how Canada's energy sector fits in the global shifts if Polyev were to become leader. Here's what Mr. Alexander had to say. These are huge issues that involve massive investments, and I would love to see you know, someone, anyone, particularly the opposition leader, because they have the most chance of forming government, laying out a narrative on these subjects and not just hammering home, you know, a couple of talking points about a carbon tax. All right, let's begin there with our uh, first guest. Uh, please do welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who is a professor at the Faculty of Management with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to talk with you again. Thanks for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Glad to be with you. I'd let me first start with the Polyev situation here, and, and uh, we'll put this into the context of uh, a story I just heard uh, this morning, that apparently the Conservatives, we, we know they're rife with cash, of course, because of all the donations that they've received. Uh, they're going to start basically a kind of a rebranding program for Mr. Polyev today. It's going to include radio, TV, and print ads, uh, basically telling us what a wonderful guy he is. Uh, but th there seems to be some concern right now about uh, his lack of, uh, of attention to some of the key issues, especially on the international stage. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's true, I think, that usually for us, elections are not about foreign policy. These are not the issues that tend to be most primary in when voters decide who they're going to vote for and what parties they're really going to pay attention to. We Our issues in elections tend to be more about affordability, um, you know, whatever, like social program, like health care, what, whatever the case may be. It's not necessarily about what's going on in terms of Canada and the world. That said, people expect governments to be holistic in their approach. And people, I think, you know, they expect those sorts of issues to be to be figured out. It's just not necessarily what people are totally, you know, hinging their vote on. And so people, I think, especially as we get closer to an election, there will be a sense of a different kind of test for Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives around how, how government ready are you? And that whole piece, I think, can, you know, even though, again, it's not so much about foreign policy, it's about how how credible an alternative 
Polyev and the conservatives are. So I think that's what this branding exercise is about to a large extent. I think the conservatives are hoping that a lot of the people who are not now indicating their support for Polyev and the conservatives are not, it's not because they don't like him. It's because they don't know him. They haven't looked at him yet, or they haven't looked at him too long. And so they're hoping that a rebranding exercise will help to bring more support his way so that when the election is called, they're in a, in a good spot. And, and that's an important part of politics these days, of course, in, in 2023, uh, you know, in, in the absence of, of you branding yourself or the party branding, you uh, the opposition has free reign to say and do what they want. Uh, and, and that's happened to a certain extent, which is maybe what's kept them back. But to that point, though, and I, I agree with your assessment, Laurie, that Canadians traditionally haven't paid a whole lot of attention uh, to global affairs when it comes to electing governments. But that was then. This is now. I mean, you know, you look at the way things are today. The world is on fire. Uh, we know that there's a war going on in Ukraine. There's some concern about Mr. Polyev's support or lack of for Ukraine, by the way, in that situation. He hasn't been very clear on that. Uh, and, of course, Canada's role when it comes to environmental issues and, and energy issues. You know, we've had two world leaders uh, coming to Ottawa in the last uh, several months, you know, saying, look, Mr. Prime Minister, you've got to help us. Uh, they're looking to Canada right now. And I guess the question a lot of people have is, is Polyev up to the job? I mean, wh- where does he stand on some of these issues? Exactly. And I think just as you were talking there, what struck me was the issues that you're raising, right, with respect to the world is on fire. Um, we can see we can see climate change happening before our eyes. We can see the effects of that in my home province in Nova Scotia. We've been hit with fires and floods in the past couple of months, and it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And yeah, I mean, part definitely part of the conversation that Justin Trudeau has been in for a while now is how is Canada going to play a role in a different kind of world order that takes into account some of the challenges that we're all facing. But the key is that none of these is a foreign policy issue. This false dichotomy between domestic issues and and foreign issues, I think, is going to eventually just show itself to be the false thing that it is. And I think we're seeing that now when we talk about what our, you know, how we are going to transition sectors to a greener economy. That is totally, you know, in line with what Canada's role is in responding to the global climate crisis. And so we're not we can't talk about these things as though you know, we're living in some bubble and and what we're doing is not affecting everybody else and what everybody else is doing is not affecting us. Like we need to just completely unpack all that right now. And so I think that is going to be a big part of the challenge for Pierre Polyev is to explain where he is on these things. He's, and it's so weird because you can see lots of voters are looking for a change. Not all of them, but lots of voters are looking. If there's another alternative, they're, they're looking, they're willing to look at it. And you can see the conservatives ahead so much in the polls. But I think there's this kind of question mark around whether Polyev and the conservatives are that kind of viable choice. If you want something new, if you want something different, are they the right thing? And so now he's going to be under a lot of pressure to iron out some of these things and and resolve some of the question marks that are in people's heads. Well, especially, and, and and just to put this in contrast, it's not as if people are thinking the liberals have done a great job on all those issues, because uh, there's a lot of people think they, they have not done a great job, which gives the conservatives a, a great opportunity here to, to try to gain some ground, but they don't seem interested. And it just, as a matter of fact, it seems to be opposite, isn't it, Laurie, that some of the comments Polyev has made uh, are, are actually rather contradictory to, to well, Places like the World Bank, for instance, uh, uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, a number of different things that that are institutions uh, that are widely recognized internationally. Uh, Mr. Polyev doesn't seem to have any time for them. Well, indeed. And when he makes those kinds of comments, 
Uh, this is a question I've had about Polyev since day one. Uh, what do you, what do you, what are you really about? Like, what do you really stand for? What's your thing? When you say these things about the World Economic Forum, the guy was in cabinet once. Like, is do you believe Polyev the things you're saying, or are you saying these things because you're trying to identify with some constituency who you think is going to show up for you? And they are the ones who hold these sorts of beliefs. And then the other thing is, is are, are these the types of things that you're saying because they're helpful to you in your fundraising efforts? They're the kinds of things that kind of make a big noise and get a bunch of attention and people will send you money and you're trying to whip up this fear of Justin Trudeau and that sort of thing. And you're, you're preying on, um, you know, a constituency of people who really don't like Trudeau, but you're not giving them enough of what you actually think. You're just sort of giving them enough so that you're keeping them interested. How is this going to work as a governing strategy? I have no idea. But it just seems to me um, Polyev continues to say these sorts of things that are kind of inflammatory. And I'm not sure whether he believes any of them. But if you are a, a, a conservative voter and you voted conservative your, you know, most of your life and or you're you know, red Tory who's not sure where you're going with any of this, somebody who seems you know, to not be taking the institutions of global governance seriously that's going to be a major concern to you. So he seems to be, again, like trying to thread this needle where he's not being totally, um, you know, he's not pinning down too much on what he thinks about anything, but he's kind of just making these little comments here and there. And he's, I think, trying to appeal to as many people as possible without totally isolating because you've got to do that in order to have a shot at governance. But at the same time, he's got to know that when he says, says these things about the World Economic Forum, like everybody's, you know, people are listening. Right. Like maybe not everybody, but people are listening and people who, again, are conservative voters because they are concerned about fiscal responsibility are going to expect a conservative prime minister to um, act in ways that are responsible with respect to global institutions. Well, especially because his old boss, Stephen Harper, tried to move uh, and elevate Canada on the international scene, spent an awful lot of time on Middle East issues and things of this nature, too. So I, and I'm sure, as you say, the rebranding actually starts today. And I, I, you know, I guess we can expect to see lots of uh, pictures now with Mr. Polly of hugging puppies and shaking hands at the Calgary Stampede and things like that. But it, I, I think Canadians are basically saying, "Yeah, but talk to us about who you are." I, I, I think you just nailed it exactly. Let me ask you about the uh, the guy who does have the job right now. Uh, the big story last week, of course, uh, was the cabinet shuffle with the prime minister. Uh, and uh, it's I, I know there's always going to be people that are going to disagree with some of the, the choices that are made in these sorts of things, Laurie. Uh, but I, I, I get in the sense from some of the stories and some of my folks up in, in Ottawa area, nobody's happy about what uh, what happened here. It's, it's really the same old, same old, the same key ministers and the key portfolios, and maybe even a, a couple of demotions that a lot of people were concerned about. What are you hearing on the Hill? Right. I mean, I think the one of the key messages is he tr he is trying to come out and say, look, we're putting a fresh face on the government. We're sort of reallocating responsibilities and we're building up our economic team. But he, as long as the prime minister and the finance minister and, you know, Jolie and Champagne are all still in the same seats, that's the key team. And if he doesn't change any of those people, then it's hard to imagine why anything would be particularly different. He's changed the the roles of a lot of people who have been around him a long time, like people like Mark Holland, um, <clears throat> even Diane Le Boutelier is like they, they've had their portfolios changed. And we can go back and forth about whether those things are linear moves or whether they're kind of a little bit of a promotion or a little bit of a demotion and what to read into there but honestly who cares it's the same it's basically the same people who some of them have had their their chair shuffled around and the key people haven't and then seven people got shown the door and then he brought seven new people in 
And so you can hear a lot of the people now, like this is what a boss Rana is reporting that he's not made the caucus happy because they're not necessarily seeing the logic in what's being done here. Um, you know, for, because the the key people are in the same spots and because some of the, you know, some of the caucus members are saying, look, like I, we don't really understand the, the, the people you've hired and fired that doesn't make total sense to us and what's going on here. And I can't, I hate to do this, but this all reminds me of the last time a leader of the liberals was in his third term and people were questioning what was going on with his leadership. Does he have the support of caucus? That was Jean Chrétien. He did a big cabinet shuffle to try to, you know, distract everybody. And I would say that his was probably a bit even more substantive than this one. But at the end of the day, the person who had to leave was him. So we shall see whether this is enough to change people's minds and put a new face on the government or what. Well, there was one change in particular that uh, I've been waiting to talk with you about because it surprised me. Uh, and that was, uh, I, I would, I, I'm going to classify it uh, as a demotion for Anita Anand, who was the, uh, the defense minister and uh, was given a very tough portfolio when she got that gig. And uh, a lot of people thought she did a, quite a good job and seemed to be writing the ship and putting us in the right direction. Uh, she's down with the Treasury Board, and that's 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 not one of the key positions. That's not a front bench position for her anymore. Uh, what's going on? And, and Bill Blair was the guy that eventually got that portfolio. And Blair is a guy who's uh, been dogged by controversy in just about every portfolio in which he's been placed so far. So I'm not so sure what the thinking for, for the Prime Minister and his, and his, his team were when they made that move. Yeah. Um, same. I had a similar reaction. And honestly, Blair coming in is weirder to me than Anand going out. Because yeah. the whole point around Anand's appointment, it seemed to me, and I think we, you and I, I remember you and I talking about this. It was, you're bringing in somebody who really does have a new, fresh perspective on an organization when the organization is is under tremendous pressure to change. And cultural shift for an organization like that is going to be extremely difficult. And it seemed like, here is a vote of confidence from Trudeau and the PMO that this is the person who's going to be able to get this done. And you'd think they would have given her the, the runway to do it. And so she has been very careful over the past couple of weeks to say this is not a demotion. And I mean, honestly, um, I, I don't see it as a demotion. I would invite us to think about people like Scott Bryson, people like Jane Philpott, who have held this portfolio uh, in this in this government, you know, under Trudeau. And they were some of the more competent people, you know, Jane Philpott, Scott Bryson, these are smart, competent people mm -hmm. who would have had to have a really keen awareness of what, how government works in, in order to be able to pull that off. I think this is, for Anon, this is going to be, she's going to be the point person for the relationship between the government and the public service. She's going to be the one talking through what does a new public service look like? How are we going to become more digital? How is government become going to become more agile? How are we going to do the program review that might be really difficult for people to swallow? So it's not going to be a fun job for her, I can't imagine, but it was a strange, uh, that, that one was a weird one. One thing, I, I only got a few seconds left here, a, a, a rumor that seems to be still hanging around on Parliament Hill uh, was that Anand, notwithstanding the work she was doing internationally and globally, uh, I guess was asking for an awful lot more money for her portfolio to try to get the military back in action and address some of the problems. Uh, and I'm told that really irked the prime minister because he simply said there's no more money for defense. Uh, and, and, and she seems to want to put that higher up on the priority list right now. Right. And yeah, I mean, it seemed like just before she was moved, 
we announced a bunch of commitments and we seem to be sort of solidifying, okay, we're going to send double the troops to Latvia. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We were figuring out what we were doing in terms of supporting Ukraine. And then she got moved. And so, yeah, I mean, I can understand if she wanted to, if she was struggling, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but if she was trying to figure out how to make this portfolio work, particularly given the reaction that we could hear once, once the prime minister said, we're not going to keep our, we're not going to meet our 2% target. We're never going to meet that. Well, that's fantastic for her. Like that, you know, that yeah. puts her in just a great position when she's going to talk to these people. And so, yeah, there could have been some tension there, but now she's going to be stuck in the, in the role of the person who's going through and finding dollars and cents right now. She's going to be doing the program review. It's going to be fascinating <laughs> to watch. Uh, great to talk with you again, Laurie. Thanks so much for the time today. You too, Bill. Take care. Take care, Dr. Larry Turnbull, of course, from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Arctic is where most Canadians worry about territorial security, according to the poll, with 73% wanting more bases in the far north. The thing that probably is driving their biggest level of concern is our northern neighbor, uh, which is which is Russia and uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now. And some of those old Cold War feelings towards Russia and the north are probably coming back up. In this year's budget, the government touts $6.1 billion over the next five years to shore up continental defense and unveil a new defense policy update later this year. It's something that will be closely watched by allies like the Americans, with their new NORAD commander promising to have tough conversations with Canada on defense spending. David Baxter, Global News, Ottawa. Well, just how do Canadians feel about this? Because it's been a very controversial subject for a number of years now, especially uh, in recent times with what uh, is going on in Ukraine, uh, which is why the folks at Ipsos uh, have done some extensive polling on this. And uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Daryl Burkert, CEO of Ipsos Polling. Uh, Daryl, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill. Let me ask you right up front. I mean, the, the numbers that uh, that you guys have been able to ascertain here indicate that more than half of Canadians, about 56%, see our armed forces as old and antiquated, uh, which which is not boding well, especially when you add to that uh, some of the prime minister's comments that there's no way we're ever going to attain that NATO goal of 2% of GDP towards uh, the military. Uh, is it going to remain old and antiquated? Yeah, well, that that is the question. You know, it's funny. It's it's not just the liberals. I mean, the conservatives also had their issues on the military. Sure, uh, but they have two different kind of motivations as to why they you know, where they they spend their money. For the conservatives, it was reducing the deficit. For the liberals, it's spending it on a whole bunch of other things. So uh, the the military loses in in both circumstances. But the world's become a more dangerous place, um, and not just in terms of how people are thinking, but in actual events that are occurring right now. And as a result of that, Canadians are moving their eyes a bit more to the military than they have probably since any uh, since the Afghan war. Well, and, and as your polling has indicated here, I, I think there's a, at least a shift, if not a, a massive shift, uh, in public opinion to suggest that, hey, yeah, maybe we need to pick up our game here. Uh, and, and, you know, the previous minister now, the defense minister, Anita Anand, who's no longer in that portfolio, seemed to be agreeing with that. So, you know, I, th I think there was maybe a, a hope or an expectation uh, that with her appointment and some of the things that she's had attempted to do anyway, uh, that, that maybe there was going to be a change of attitude uh, when it came to Canada's military. Uh because, as you mentioned in, in the reporting I saw about your your the, the Ipsos polling, uh, you mentioned the military to an awful lot of Canadians, and it conjures up a picture of them piling up sandbags, you know, during the Red River floods in Manitoba, uh, and not doing what military are really trained to do. Well, you know, Canadians do have a, a diversified sense of what the military is uh, supposed to do. They have 
you know, away assignments, but they also have at-home responsibilities. So Canadians believe that they should be able to actually achieve both. What What's happened is since the, the, the Afghan war, there's been a decline in terms of the focus on what uh, Canada's military prepares to do outside of the country. And I think that uh, that's become more of an, of an issue, particularly as a result of what we're seeing in Ukraine and as a result of what we're seeing also in the Straits of Taiwan. But we are suggesting right now, uh, according to your polling, uh, the Canadians do want to see an increase in defense spending. Uh, is it because of the uh, I, uh, the ongoing and persistent, uh, uh, you know, requests, and I'm using the term loosely here, uh, from NATO allies and others that we've got to step up here? Because, as you mentioned, uh, 2023 is, is a much different scenario than it was 50 years ago. Yeah, well, Canadians do have a sense that, you know, we probably uh, play should be playing a significant role in the world, uh, but also that we have responsibilities for defending ourselves. And one of the questions we asked was, uh, is this something we should kind of just give up on and just kind of acknowledge what the reality is anyway, and, and the United States uh, should be uh, responsible for our defense? You know, 78% of Canadians disagreed with that. Well, that means that you're going to have to actually invest something in the military. So there's a there's a complicated series of things that are happening out there that have probably increased the level of focus on the military in a way that we haven't seen since the Afghan war. Is, is it embarrassing? Did you get the sense as you were doing the polling, Daryl, the Canadians are, are concerned, yes, but even a little embarrassed by our, our, our lack of, of, of commitment when it comes to this? I mean, you know, we have two international incidents. There was the balloon uh, escapade, of course, a few months ago, the balloons flying over North America. Uh, and in the press releases, they tried to encourage it to say that Canada was a part of it, uh, but they were slow to respond, and the U.S. basically had to take the lead. And then just the, this past weekend, of course, we had the, the Chinese and Russian mil, or naval activities going off uh, up in the, in the Arctic areas there. And the U.S. responded to it. Uh, there's no word yet that the, the Canadians were even involved in that. Well, that's, a, that's our backyard. Uh, it, at some point, I guess, you know, Canadians are going to get a little embarrassed and a little upset that we just don't seem to be ready to answer the bell when the bell rings. Well, that's why 56% of us think that the uh, Canadian Air Forces is old and antiquated. And by the way, we also asked, you know, is, are, are, do we have among the best in the world? Only 59% said that we, that we do. So, you know, there really is a sense that the Canadian Armed Forces, given the challenges that we're presented with today, are really not being supported by taxpayers to the degree that Canadians feel they should be supported. But it didn't used to be that way. I mean, you know, guys like you and me that have been around for a while uh, can recall when Canadian military were held in the highest regard on the global stage. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the end of the Second World War, Canada had, yeah. particularly its Navy, was, I think, the third largest in the world. I mean, uh, it was always a reliable partner on, you know, important missions like the, the, the war in Korea and, and other, you know, peacekeeping assignments that we had over the, over the years and obviously a very strong participant in both the First and Second World War. Um, but the Canadian military today is a, a shadow of, 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 of what that, those, uh, those militaries were. Now, uh, the, the truth is that, um, uh, you know, we're, we're not in a kind of World War type of circumstance, so the, the level of focus on, on, on uh, providing for the military may not be as high. Uh, but uh, right now, Canadians are, you know, they're in a situation where they're, they're, there's a belief that we need to have this capability, but not, an under, not a, a belief in, in the government's, uh, in this instance, the federal government, providing them with what they need. But also one of the questions we asked was, do you think that modernization has been uh, held back by mismanagement and political uh, interference? 
70% of Canadians think that. So it's not just that, you know, the mission that we want the, the military to do and whether or not it should be there and doing what uh, Canadians feel it needs to do, but also the way that the, the politicians manage uh, the support for the military. There's a, there's a real problem among Canadians about how that's being done. And, and as you mentioned, uh, I, I guess, you know, the, the initial reaction would be to blame the current government for that. And, and there's certainly some culpability there. But this has been going on for generations, hasn't it? I mean, conservative and liberal governments have, have consistently uh, downplayed their military commitments and their money towards the military. It's, it's almost like death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. But I mean, it does kind of stick to the Trudeau brand. If anybody, people who follow the follow the military closely, it's kind of like uh, you know on the national unity question. You know, the Trudeau name certainly has a, uh, implications for that. But you know, his father tried to unify the Canadian military, which subsequent governments you know rolled everything back on. But there was a real feeling back then that uh, the, the, the the federal liberals really didn't support the Canadian military, and there's a feeling now that that's the case. Fair charge? I don't know. As I said before, diff- uh, different parties have been in power, and we've had a similar situations for the military. But uh, the Liberals seem to have a particular vulnerability, a particular vulnerability on this question. Well, and again, it's because, as you say, we're not in a global conflict, except that we are, aren't we? I mean, even if the government doesn't want to acknowledge it, uh, what's going on in Ukraine uh, is is having international implications, not just militarily, but economically and otherwise too. Well, I think the issue that will really cut through for people, though, Bill, is the one that you raised earlier, which is what's going on in the North. And even though Canadians don't really know what's what's up in the North, I mean, how many Canadians actually travel to the far North and have ever been there or have any personal experience or personal connection to it? It's kind of a spiritual connection. You know, 83% on this poll said Canada needs to be monitoring everything that's going on in the North. The Canadian Armed Forces is not capable of doing that today. And I think if, if Canadians learned that and they learned it in a real way, say, for example, like you said about you know um, uh, maneuvers by hostile powers up there that we weren't uh, monitoring or involved in, that's even more important in many ways than people's reaction to Canada's uh, you know potential role in, uh, in, in what's happening in Europe right now. The North yeah. we really do see as our backyard, and we do have a strong spiritual connection to it. And the fact that the Canadian military wouldn't have been involved in being able to deal with that, that's a real vulnerability. Well, and General Air has made those comments quite clear, hasn't he, in some of the past situations that, uh, you know, even if we want to go back to, you know, the, the U.S. request that Canada have a, an active policing role in Haiti, uh, there's the commitment, as you say, to the Arctic as well. And, and Air's response has been, we just don't have the staff to be able to do it. We wish we could. Uh, but he doesn't seem to have, uh, you know, the, the, the willpower uh, from the federal government to do something about this. And, and I guess that's the frustration part here. You could, I guess, say, make an argument, although I don't think it's a very strong argument, that that's, you know, Ukraine is over there. We, we're we more worried about here. Well, as you say, the north is here. That That's our border. Uh, you know, it, when we were in school, I mean, anybody that's looked at a map, for instance, a global map, Canada, that lo- it's always in pink, of course, on the, these colored maps. And that pink extends all the way up almost to the Arctic Circle. Uh, we've got to, I guess, accept the realization that there are a lot of countries, China and Russia included, that don't respect that. And they think that's open territory. And that, and they, they've, they weren't just there Sunday. They've been there for quite some time, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you talk to the Canadian military about any of this, the activities of the Chinese... Up in um, up in the Arctic has have been very concerned, and the reason for that is what's happening, and this is you know climate change related, is with the decline of the Arctic sea ice, those now start to become navigable trade routes. Mm-hmm. There's people who are going to be going over top of the Arctic 
uh, you know, instead of across the Atlantic or the Pacific, going over through the Arctic Ocean in order to be able to trade with North America. And it cuts off a lot of time. It's almost like a canal uh, when they open it up, like the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal or whatever. So that's now happening. There's going to be a ton of activity up there. It's very environmentally um, uh, um, uh, a very difficult environmental situation, but also a very difficult defense situation. So what capabilities do we have that are able to go up uh, and, and monitor that? And the Canadian Navy, barely any. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we're in the process of replacing fighter jets that are, you know, 45, 50 years old that we would also rely on to be able to do that sort of thing. So we're in a difficult situation. And according to your polling, Canadians are becoming more and more concerned about about the day. Daryl, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Daryl Berker from Ipsos Polling, CEO for Ipsos. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All eyes, of course, have been gone to the U.S. political situation over the last couple of weeks, uh, and it all involves Donald Trump. Uh, you know, they, they've got the same problems domestically that many countries in the world do, housing affordability, uh, the economy, uh, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Trump, again, is dominating the U.S. headlines. Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for this today. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on here. And it, it's difficult uh, for us, and that's why we rely on, on your expertise here, uh, to even decide with the, the number of indictments that Trump is under right now and more to come. Uh, I want to talk about what's going on in Florida and in Washington, but more importantly, uh, the Georgia situation, uh, which got an awful lot of publicity uh, when that came to light just after the, the last U.S. election, uh, may be coming to a, 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 not necessarily a closing, but to the point where he could be indicted there too. What are you hearing about that, Reggie? Could be indicted there uh, and could be indicted there this week. There's actually some uh, some excellent reporting that's been done from some of the local uh, stations uh, and, and newspapers in Atlanta that suggest that uh, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, could be prepared to announce an indictment against the former president as early as this week. We know that the grand jury uh, sits on Mondays and Tuesdays. There's a second grand jury that sits in Fulton County on Thursdays and Fridays. And we've already been told um, that the presentation to the to those juries is, is likely going to take two days. Um, so if that is not currently underway, uh, there's a real chance here, according to the reporting, that, that this could take place um, by Friday, at least at the earliest. Um, and if it does, this is going to be another huge moment for the former president. Again, actions that he undertook linked to what took place during, before, and after the 2020 election here. Um, all eyes really are on Atlanta, as the rest of the eyes kind of focus on what's happening in, in the you know already indictment-laid cities of D.C. and Florida. I, I know one of Trump's assertions through this whole thing, of course, has been that this is just a witch hunt, uh, and it's it's the Biden administration uh, weaponizing the Justice Department, as he explains it, uh, against him because he's a political rival. Uh, but this in Georgia, this is this is driven by state, isn't it? This is not a federal situation. This is this is state, and that's what makes this um, a little more difficult for the former president to try and weasel his way out of. Uh, and it's because at the state level, whatever takes place, whatever conviction comes, whatever indictment comes, uh, it is at the state level, and there is nothing that can be done um, if the former president were to win or if another Republican were to win uh, to be able to offer any kind of pardon. A pardon can only be done for a federal crime. And the fact that this is at the state level, and these are significant charges being potentially brought at the state level that could include racketeering linked to 
these efforts to overturn the election or these efforts to interfere with the voting count or to try and, um, you know, subvert things in order to allow for Trump to stay in office uh, essentially illegally here. Uh, this is a big deal. And sure, Trump is going to again claim that this is a Democrat going after him, that this is, you know, an extension of the Justice Department in Washington trying to go after him. But I think if you clear all of that mud out of the way, Bill, I think it's important to remember here that as Trump is claiming weaponization and the Biden administration for what's taking place in Atlanta and in Washington, he's not making those same claims about the indictment in Florida, where the judge was handpicked by him and selected at random and is making decisions for him. And there's no question about the jury makeup in Florida. So it's only weaponization going after Trump, essentially, when it is a Democrat-led and a Democratic-appointed judge, not when it is a judge that's been appointed by Trump. Oh, and especially in the Georgia situation, uh, I mean, we probably all heard that phone call, you know, find me whatever thousand votes it was, and, and we can overturn this thing. Trump talking to the, the Georgia Attorney General at that particular time, uh, who, if I recall, was a Republican, uh, and they're the ones that released the tape. So, I mean, uh, it's taken them a long, long time to, to finally say this, that we're close here. But you got to wonder just how, as you mentioned, Reggie, how extreme these charges are going to be in that particular situation. Sure. And, and look, the defense is already, or at least Trump and, and his team are already trying to kind of position this and, hey, look, we didn't do anything wrong here. This is, you know, more infringements on First Amendment's, uh, you know, freedoms of speech with the former president and what he was legally allowed to do. And m most people in the legal world say, yes, Donald Trump had the right to fight against, um, you know, the what he perceived to be fraud through the court system in Georgia, what he didn't have the right to do uh, was conspire, was was to work with other people to try and fraudulently flip the election in his favor, even though it was an election in the state of Georgia that he lost. And those words that he spoke in that he was looking for 11,700 and change votes to give him one more than Joe Biden had, that really is kind of at the the heart of what this potential racketeering charge could be. And, and these are going to be um, heavily weighted charges against the former president, especially with the number of people who are still coming forward to speak uh, and testify before the grand jury in this investigation, people who were actively linked to the Republican side of things and who had firsthand knowledge of potential uh, efforts by Trump-associated legal people to, to get into voting machines and try to take some of the data from voting machines. There's a lot that went on here. There's a lot that this investigation has covered, and a lot of it could be done at Trump's own kind of will to try and stay in power illegally. And the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, I guess, uh, when the, the, the Washington indictment uh, came down last week, was was quite clear, wasn't he, Reggie, that uh, we are not charging him for what he said. We're charging him for what he did. This is not a freedom of speech issue. And and he he seemed to be very, very adamant about that, notwithstanding the fact that the the Republicans are using this freedom of speech as, as I guess, the foundation for their, their opposition to this. You know, what's interesting about that, too, is, yeah, we heard the, the the special counsel talk about how this is not based on speech, it's based on conduct. But as we kind of see the layers peeled back here and this now new fight 
that's ongoing between uh, the special counsel and Trump's team about a protective order to try and ensure that evidence that was uh, presented during discovery to the former president can't be you know, put out there in the public sphere. Um, I spoke with a former federal prosecutor yesterday, and he said it actually does look like that this case, at least in D.C., is being linked back to speech more than it is conduct, because at the end of the day, what we have here are a repeated number of things from the former president that were spoken, that his lawyers are now trying to claim were aspirational and not directional, but ultimately things that the former president said that resulted in actions. And now you have this protective order based on, again, what the former president is saying, this time on social media and the potential that that could have on witness interference. There is a real, you know, um, possibility here that what the president says becomes the central focus here or at least tied to the conduct that was carried out by Donald Trump and those other, you know, so far at this point, unindicted co-conspirators. But that goes to tone. And and I know that to some people, it's going to sound like we're splitting hairs, but I guess from a legal standpoint, this is, this is a pretty important uh, aspect, isn't it, Reggie, that, uh, you know, when Trump tweets something like, if you come after me, I'm going after you, uh, that's a threat. Uh, you know, if it were John Gotti or, or you know, Sam Giancana that said that, uh, we'd say, hey, wait a second, that you can't do that. But um, Trump seems to feel that he's got free reign to be able to make those kind of comments. And I, th- I think that, you know, you you start to see the, the, the kind of seriousness of those words when things like that come out and the legal team immediately has to follow up with, oh, we're going to clean this up. What he was actually trying to say was, you know, oh, we're going after rhinos or, oh, we're going after people who are on the Democratic side who are simply trying to kick out the presumed frontrunner of the Republican Party. But Donald Trump's words, as we have now seen for years, do oftentimes have uh, result in actions and result in consequences. And it's not just that one uh, uh, post to his social media account of, you know, if you come after me, I'll come after you. It's the ongoing, um, you know, picking away at the people who are involved in the legal system. It's calling the special counsel deranged. It's going after the family of the special counsel. It's going after uh, the judge who, in this case, is is an Obama-appointed judge and has been very strict in how she has been dealing with sentences uh, surrounding other January 6th defendants. Uh, you know, there are serious concerns here that, sure, the tone is one thing to pay attention to, but it's it's the words that can also have ramifications here because there is still such a strong kind of vault of support that the foundation for Trump is 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 sitting on um, that anybody can take those words the way that they want to. Uh, and and what do we wind up with? We wind up with then Trump's legal team trying to say, well, again, this is all just aspirational talk. We're not actually directing people to say things. And it, you know, his as a, as the person I spoke with yesterday said, Trump's kind of legal strategy here is simply his political strategy. Exactly. And and I guess one of the real head scratchers in this whole scenario is is the more he is indicted, uh, the larger his lead over DeSantis seems to be. Uh, so obviously the MAGA supporters are, are there and they do look at as him, I guess, as a, as a martyr to, to their cause, to the MAGA cause, but what are the other contenders? What are the other candidates for the, the, the Republican nomination doing about this? I mean, uh, they were very reticent to go after Trump. Uh, it's, is, is that, that hard shell around Trump starting to crack? It is, or at least there is a bit more of a of a strengthened backbone in some of the people who are at one time kind of fearful of what Trump might do to their campaign. But to see someone like former Vice President Mike Pence now stand up and start pushing back, maybe not so much on Trump himself, but encompassing the whole story by calling, you know, the people that he was speaking with crackpot lawyers, this is this is a far more aggressive tone, as aggressive as that might be. 
um, for the former vice president to be taking. And and even someone like Ron DeSantis, who over the weekend was pressed during an interview, a great interview with uh, with uh, NBC, where they said, look, did Joe Biden win the election? And he kind of danced around an answer. And then it was said, hey, can you just give us a yes or no? And he said, well, yeah, Joe Biden did win the election. So what you have here now are actualities and realities that that his competitors are taking to say, look, Donald Trump lost that election. Donald Trump is proving problematic right now. Whether or not it resonates with the base, we need to see what the polling looks like. We need to see what takes place at the next or at the first debate a couple of weeks from now. I think on the DeSantis front, they really are trying to, to change things up to position him to be the, the front runner if Trump is taken out. And so much so that in the last couple of hours or so, we found out that Ron DeSantis has now changed up his campaign manager uh, to try and continue this month long reset uh, as he you know, develops his own grounding to try and stand on. Again, we don't know what it's going to resonate with when it comes to supporters. But for the most part, while there is a wide distance between Trump and DeSantis, DeSantis is doing what he can to pick away at some of that support. You mentioned uh, Pence, and that, that's an interesting story that, that's developing, as you've been reporting over the last couple of days, Reggie. Uh, Pence was one of these guys that was very reticent to, to say anything negative about Trump. Uh, but he did jump onto one of the defense points, one of the Trump points that they've been trying to hammer away at here, and that's the fact that uh, they did not ask uh, Pence to overturn the election. They just asked him to delay it and send it back to the states, uh, and they've been using that as, as one of their main talking points. Pence, uh, over the weekend, as you reported, I was quite clear and said, that's not what they asked me to do. I was in the room. I was the guy that they were talking to. They did not ask me to delay. They asked me to overturn the election. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what, what that's going to do and how it's going to resonate, uh, but at least it shows that Pence is finally starting to realize that I got to take him down if I want the nomination. Sure. And I think it, it begs that question. If opportunity comes knocking, is Mike Pence going to to kind of step up and testify if need be in the case in Washington, D.C., considering such a central part of it focused on not only Mike Pence in his ceremonial role of counting the votes, but in Mike Pence's role as vice president? Because remember, his life was being threatened by the people that were in the crowd, um, you know, outside of the Capitol on, on January 6th. And to see Mike Pence say, look, uh, this was a, a directed conversation to me. Donald Trump said, at least what we saw in the indictment, uh, that Mike Pence was, quote unquote, just too honest uh, and and not kind of following or towing the line that Trump and, and the, you know, quote unquote, crackpot lawyers uh, were trying to push here. You know, whether or not it, it it does anything to move the needle of support, again, we need to see. We know donations are coming in. Mike Pence has now qualified for the debate, uh, the Republican debate later on this week. Um, but again, this kind of goes back to where the Trump legal team is right now and that they're trying to parse their words and cover up the words spoken by Donald Trump to say nothing was directional. This was all aspirational. But if that's the case, you now have Mike Pence directly opposing what Trump's legal team and Trump himself are actually saying. And this could become kind of fuel for the special counsel if they opt to try and get Pence to testify. If, uh, as as you've been reporting, uh, the Georgia case comes to a head uh, in just a couple of days, as is expected, uh, you've got the Washington case, you've got the Florida case, probably, uh, if, you know, if we're ranking these things, the New York case seems to be probably the weakest. Uh, who goes first here, Reggie? I mean, because it's, it's going to be precedent setting. Well, I mean, look, who goes first is already set because there are trials that are going to kick up in, in October having to do with Trump's business dealings in New York. And that stuff is already on the schedule. We also know uh, that the documents trial is expected to start next May. We know that there's uh, there are cases linked to E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump that are expected to start 
in January. Uh, the Georgia case is going to be uh, one to watch to find out whether or not something moves out of the way. Does New York and Alvin Bragg move things out of the way to let Georgia slide in there? Uh, does does uh, special counsel here in D.C. to try to fast track his federal case to try and get things done before all of this starts uh, to try and not linger it through the election next year. You know, all eyes are on the calendar. There are only so many days for both the court and for the campaign. And we are very quickly approaching primary and caucus season at the very beginning of next year. And that's going to make it a difficult walk here for Trump, Trump's lawyers and the variety of, uh, of prosecutors that are going after him. Uh, you know, we need to see who's going to prevail here. Fonnie Willis says that her case is solid and it's ready to go. We need to see how fast she's going to be able to move that forward. But Jack Smith is also somebody very quickly trying to make sure uh, that nothing derails his case, so much so that they now have uh, a... a hearing scheduled for Friday to deal with this protective order issue on what Trump can and cannot say in a sign that both special counsel here in D.C. and the judge want to move things along as quickly as they can. A very fluid activity, of course, in Washington and other parts of the states uh, in, in courtrooms right across the nation, I guess. And uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National on this, Reggie. As always, thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.